welcome to another edition of the Purple Talk podcast here on NBC Sports California. I am James Ham. Joining me in one box, we're doing this on Zoom, so if you're not watching the video feed, you should be. You can watch both. Um, Mr. Doug Christie, say hello, Doug. Hey, hey, what's happening, everybody? And in the other screen, we have the legendary voice of the Sacramento Kings, the incomparable Gary Gerald. Hey. What's up, G-Man? I'm in esteemed company. I love it. That's, that's right. Uh, first of all, just how are you holding up in lockdown? I, I did see the other day that uh, you posted a picture. You've been out gardening. Um, I myself am about to buy some overalls because I've gone full gardener up here. Um, but like, it, G-Man, what do you got going on during this crazy time? Well, it's like everybody else, you know, you try to try to find a little structure. You try to find a way to, you know, get through another day. Uh, I have had the opportunity to play golf a couple of times, which has been a terrific change of pace. And I think that, frankly, I think that, you know, you're safer on the golf course than you are when you go to the grocery store or to the bank or, or whatever. Uh, so that's that's been I really have enjoyed that a lot. Um, but, you know, you mentioned the gardening thing. I am not a gardener by any stretch of the imagination. My wife is the gardener of this household, but her physical limitations have slowed her down a lot. And she can't get out and do a lot of the things that she wants. Uh, we, we had some friends who recently sent us um, a, a grouping of azalea plants uh, in memory of our, our daughter, Beth. We lost about six weeks ago. And so we were trying to find a place to put them, and I became the designated planter. And uh, I pity the plants. <laughs> we'll see how this works out in the long run. But that's, that's the extent of my gardening skills right there. At least I got dirty doing it. So I was down and dirty. <laughs> <laughs> no green thumb for the Jeep man. Uh, you know, uh, I see a, uh, a ball over your right shoulder there. Just wondering, I, I know I am missing that ball right there and everything that goes with it. How about yourself? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. We all know, you know, these are unprecedented times and, and it, and it does drive you nuts. I mean, basketball has been your life, Doug, forever. James yeah. is yes. intimately involved, of course, with his duties that relate to the Kings. And of course, I've got 35 years invested in the Kings organization myself. And so, you know, you look back and you say, March 11th and the, switch got flipped and and we're all just in this huge void now and you know i've read so many books and i've looked at so many different uh, highlight packages and i've watched you know replays of games and game sevens and not only in basketball but in hockey and in football and even a little bit of baseball it's just like okay how am i going to fill this particular evening so we miss basketball tremendously no question now, what are you reading? That's kind of what we've been going through because we can't just talk basketball anymore. That's the interesting thing about this. And Doug and I were talking about it right before you came on that we're at this point where, like, you know, I've had Bogdan Bogdanovich and the he's going over and using his neighbor's hoop and him and his sister are binge watching like Serbian shows on on Netflix, which I didn't even know there were Serbian shows. Um, you know, like every single one of these guys are are doing something different, but like, what are you getting into? What's your, what, do you, what is your book uh, of choice or the taste of books that you like to get into? And, and what are you watching outside of basketball and, and hockey and everything else? Uh, I'm a fiction reader. I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of nonfiction. 
Although I do have, I just looked down here, I purchased uh, uh, a book about the Kennedys just uh, the other day, which I, I get to get into. Uh, crime fiction, primarily. Uh, James Patterson, I'm a big fan there. Lee Child, uh, I'm a big fan of his. Harlan Coben, different ones. Oh, like. man. Yeah, he's a good one. Yeah, there's some there's some good stuff there, some really good yeah. stuff. And the problem is sometimes I, I had this huge stack of books, and I thought, well, I'm good for, for a long time. And, you know, a month later, I've gone through basically the stack. And so <laughs> every five to seven days, I make a quick trip to Costco to see what's available. They got new releases out. Uh, Netflix, um, I've been, somebody got me into Money Heist, which I'm, you know, is okay. I'm in the second season of that. Uh, Ozark, I was a big fan of that. Gobbled mm -hmm. that up, and um, you know, different different things in the in the Netflix genre. I have never been a big movie buff at home, uh, but I've even turned to HBO and now recording movies um, that you know in the past that I haven't seen, and some of them have been pretty darn entertaining and pretty good. Man, uh, G-Man, uh, Midland, Michigan, Midland, Michigan. That's, uh, that's where it all started for you. Um, just kind of talk about what got you into wanting to be a, a sportscaster, or, or was that really when you started on this path, what you ultimately wanted to do? We know NASCAR and, and everything that you've done there, uh, which I, I want to get into because I'm quite interested in that part of, uh, of your career. What, what got a young G-man going that said, this is where I want my life to go? Well, from as young as I can remember, uh, and I have no idea how what the genesis was, but I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. Uh, I was an only child. My father died when I was 12 years old uh, after seven years of cancer. And my mother uh, was ill much of the time, had a variety of, of illnesses. Uh, some of them were pretty significant. And as a consequence, uh, I, I lived with my minister's family. I lived with neighbors for varying stretches of time. And at a pretty young age, I learned to get along on my own fairly well. And mm -hmm. shortly after my father passed, uh, about the time I was 13, uh, the local radio station in Midland, Michigan was about a mile, less than a mile from my home. It became my second home. And the people there were very welcoming. Every evening after school and did my paper route. I had a paper route for seven years, delivered five different daily newspapers. <laughs> People don't even know what the heck that is anymore. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but uh, I would go to the radio station and I would just hang out and I just absorbed. I just I watched wow. the disc jockeys. I, I watched how they handled, you know, and in a small town radio, you do everything. You do news, you do sports, you do music. And so uh, at a, as a teenager, uh, they gave me a weekly show. Uh, I did little stints on the air at a pretty young age. And the bottom line was that by the time I, I was ready to graduate from high school and go to college, I had a fairly good grasp of what small town radio was like. I uh, went to school, Anderson University in Indiana, and then I would come home in the summers and I worked full time at the radio station. And so that was kind of the, the, the basis of these things. But going back to, you know, how did you get going in terms of sports interest? Uh, again, I don't know what, what triggered that, but I just knew I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. And wow. I mentioned the seven years of delivering papers uh, late afternoons during the week uh, after school and then Sunday mornings. 
And in Michigan, in the dead of winter, some of those Sunday mornings, you're getting up at 430 to bring in those <laughs> packages of newspapers and the snow is blowing and one thing or another, and it's just miserable. Uh, but I would find myself, there were various stretches on my route where I would have a long distance between homes. And I'd be making up and calling basketball games in my head. And, wow. and that's kind of how, you know, the seed was really planted. And, and then I was able to kind of piecemeal my way along over the next several years to finally eventually get into a situation where I was doing only sports. And that was when, when we came to Sacramento in the mid-1960s. Wow. Now you did, uh, I mean, I grew up watching you do the Rayleigh's commercials, right? The produce commercials? Am I, am I crazy? For about uh, 10 or 12 years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember you walking through the produce section on my TV every, you know, all the time. So, I, I mean, you really. You growing it, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> now we know you didn't grow any of that. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. But, I, I mean, you've been a Sacramento staple for so long. I mean, how how did this become home? How did you... Uh, you get here and all of a sudden, man, I, we're just not leaving. This is where we're staying. A couple of interesting stories, if we will. And I, I don't want yeah. to on time limitations and one thing or another. Uh, while we were in Michigan, after I had graduated from Anderson University, um, my wife and I, well, we give, she gives birth to our, our first child, Beth. And um, this was in January of 1963. And uh, I'm calling sports for the local radio station in the high school. And we had a, a strong high school program. We had a state championship football team. And, and there's an interesting story there, if you will. Um, in the first fall that I'm back there and I'm going observing, watching the sports director handle the games on Friday nights. And, and football in, in Michigan at that time was a very big thing. And at halftime of one of the games, he went out, presumably to, I don't know, have a smoke, Take, have a beer. I don't know what he was doing, but he didn't come back. And what station manager, who was the engineer, turned to me and he said, looks like you'll be doing the second half of this football game. <laughs> no I had a program that had names and numbers, for that which I grabbed, and I called the second half of that game. Well, the sports director then lost his job as a consequence of his disappearing act, and I became the play-by-play -play guy doing the rest of the football Come season on. and then to the basketball season. Fast forward to about March toward the end of the basketball season. Uh, this was in, what, 1965, I guess, 1966. I, uh, no, 1963. It doesn't make any difference. It's a long time ago. Yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> my father-in-law, who was a minister in Chico, California, 100 miles north of Sacramento, uh, he's in recording a lead in and lead out to religious programming that they had on Sunday morning to meet the requirements of having an FCC license, KHSL radio in Chico. He's recording, he comes out of the recording booth and the fiery little Lebanese program director came storming out of his office and said, preacher, I just had to fire so-and-so, what am I gonna do? And my father-in-law, who was a rather stoic large man says, well, I happen to have a son-in-law in Michigan who's involved in radio. Preacher, get him on the phone right now. <laughs> Two weeks later, Marlene and Beth and I are headed from Midland, what? Michigan, driving cross country to Chico, California. So, I mean, it's just funny how these things evolve. 
But James, get back to your question, how do we come to Sacramento? Two years in Chico, while we're there doing the usual, you know, music, news, sports on the radio side, KHSL Television, their sister station, did not have any local news programming. And they decided that they wanted to start local news. And they came to me and said, how would you like to be do the sports on our new newscast? I had no television background experience whatsoever. And so consequently, I said, of course, because it meant, and I don't remember exactly, I think it was $5 for each night, uh, five nights a week. I got five minutes of time sitting in front of a studio camera doing basically a radio sportscast, but talking to a camera. And evolving out of that was learning a little bit about television. You fast forward within a year, I get a phone call out of the blue from a fellow by the name of Bill Zimlick here in Sacramento, who has long since passed away. He says, you don't know me, my name is Bill Zimlick. I used to work at KHSL Radio in Chico. But I, there is a sports opening at KCRA Television here, and I think you need to talk to the news director, who he identified and gave me a contact number. I had never done anything like that. Called them, and they said, well, can you come down to Sacramento from Chico and, and spend a day with us? Yes. Arlene, Beth, and I go down to Sacramento from Chico, um, spend a day talking with them. They're big in philosophy and one thing or another. The Kelly Brothers owned Channel 3 at that time. Dave Hume was then the news director. He said, let's go down in the studio and uh, prepare a little, you know, do a three-minute sportscast. So, okay, no problem. Did that. He um, said, well, boy, that looked relatively easy to you. He said, you've been doing a lot of those? And I said, no, sir, that's actually the first time I've ever done a television audition. I know, I know very little about it. Two weeks later, we're packed up and headed to Sacramento wow. with a job at KCRA-TV. So that was 1965, and it's been home since. And uh, we quickly learned that we like Sacramento a lot. I spent uh, a good stretch of time, 12 years at, uh, at Channel 3. I was unceremoniously dumped. After 12 years, they got consultants who came into the business, the broadcast industry for the first time. And I didn't have enough pizzazz. I didn't have analytics, fire and that kind of stuff. <laughs> and they wanted to make a change. And I got a call in September of 1977. I was on vacation that week. And they said, uh, Gary, we'd like you to come in and talk. And I had a had an inkling. And I said, so are you calling me up to tell me I'm fired? Oh, well, no, not exactly in one thing or another. Bottom line, I said, give me an hour to think about this. And I thought, you know, this is ridiculous. I know what they've, they've got their mind made up. Um, so the option they gave me was either be fired or resign. <laughs> nice option, right? You're so right. I, uh, I called him back and said, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm out. And uh, consequently, we were, we were then you know, on our own and facing a decision. Do you try to uproot and go to another market and reestablish an identity? Do you try to somehow capitalize on an identity that you had built over 12 years being in Sacramento? And, uh, we couldn't find job openings. I wanted to be, stay in California. Tried San Francisco, San Diego, Los Angeles without success. Decided, well, we'll just we'll stay here and we'll try to make the best of it. And that eventually, James, led to the business of the Rayleigh's commercials. Uh, Bob Witten, who had been their commercial spokesman, suffered a significant stroke. I filled in for him and then they offered me the job on a, on a regular basis. And the irony was I was making about three times 
a year what I was making as a sports broadcaster at Channel 3 doing the Rayleigh's commercials uh, <laughs> and, and did that for a good long period of time. And so it just, we, it, we realized that we liked Sacramento. Uh, we didn't want to uproot and go through that whole business of trying to reestablish an identity, which so many in the broadcast industry are forced to do. And uh, as things worked out, it worked out very, very well. I would say so. You know, G-Man, when, um, when I listen to you, there's a, there's a couple of pieces. One is the, the silky smooth chords of the voice, but the other are the descriptors. He crosses the half-court line, socks pulled up to his calves, and, and you go into these descriptors. I, I personally don't like listening to my voice. Your voice, it, it sounds fantastic. Do you like the Do you like the way your voice sounds? Did you ever try to make it sound a certain way? And and where did you get to all the descriptors? That's uh, an interesting question, Doug. And I, I I don't know if there's a quick easy answer to that. I, I it's just one of those things that I've always felt comfortable with, and because of the early opportunities, I became very familiar with what my voice sounded like ah. in the situation as as a teenager, and yes. so I was comfortable with that. And okay. I've always been, for whatever reason, and I suppose it goes back to your upbringing, and my parents had deep religious convictions. The church was an important part of our life. Uh, but I had no pretense. I didn't want to be something that I wasn't. I wanted to be genuine. I wanted to be myself. And as we grow older and as we mature a little bit, I think um, you become maybe a little stronger in your belief about such things. And there were times when I would be greatly frustrated because I knew I wasn't the flashy Pazam quick impact in terms of television. Mm -hmm. And I envied some of those people. But then I also thought people tire of that relatively mm -hmm. quickly, I think. And some people are good at making, you know, they take a shtick and they make it their trademark and it, and it works for them. Right. It just, I knew it wouldn't work for me. And, uh -huh. and it was basically that, that simple. As far as the descriptors, I don't know. I think that one of the things that puzzles me and intrigues me now, uh, the broadcast business, as you know, Doug, is so competitive. James, you know it. You you dabble with it as well as you know all your print work from years gone by. But it's so competitive, and young people getting into the business now, so many times want to start at the top, mm. and it doesn't work that way in my mind. You got to pay dues in my mind, yeah. and if it means you know, building a network, establishing your skills, understanding the difference between radio and television. The, the, the analogy that I've always used over the years, in television, you're a passenger on the bus because what you see on the screen dictates what you talk about. In yes. radio, you're the driver of the bus. You create <laughs> the scenario. People can't see. You're their conduit to what's happening if they're listening yes, to you on the radio. So you've got to find ways to be descriptive and to be hopefully entertaining, yet informative, and, and somehow paint a picture. And there's such a basic difference between radio and television in that respect. And I think sometimes people lose sight of that. So mm -hmm. to me, a good radio broadcaster is somebody who can create a picture in your mind that you can close your eyes and you can envision if it's a basketball floor, if it's inside an arena, whatever it is that you're doing. 
You are listening to the Purple Talk Podcast on NBC Sports California. If you haven't already, please jump on, give us a rating and review. We'd greatly appreciate it. Let's get to a word from our sponsors. Big O Tires is open and here to serve you. In accordance with the shelter-in-place mandate, Big O Tires is considered an essential business and most locations remain open. Call your local Big O Tire store for store hours and information. Big O Tires, the team you trust. All right, let's get back to the podcast. James Ham, Doug Christie with the amazing Gary Gerald. You know, I, uh, I got my first job when I was 15. I think I, three days after I turned 15, I got my first job at uh, Big A's Drive-In in Grass Valley. And nice. I worked there all through high school. It's a old A&W that they had, you know, had sold out and, and become like a, pr- a private, you know, family-run business. And uh, I would, after we closed, I would crank up the radio uh, and clean the grill and clean the floors, listening to you call games, uh, you know, wow. in the 91, 92, uh, 90, 91, 92, around that area. Uh, and I think what people miss, my question would be, how has it changed for you? How have you, the descriptors are so different because I remember very specifically moving from left to right on your dial. I mean, you were able to explain while someone's in their car, they now see the basketball court as one tuning knob and one volume knob on their, on their actual radio. And that's their telling, they're thinking of the game going back and forth on the dial, but the dial's gone. So how do you continuously <laughs> reinvent who you are uh, through this process uh, of, you know, 35 years just covering one sport, covering one team and calling every single game? Well, it's, um, it's interesting. I mean, yes, the, the knobs on the dial are not there, but still, I usually try to initially, at, at the start of a broadcast, once the opening tip, you know, Kings will be to our left as we view the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, our vantage point is plaza level, <clears throat> and Golden <clears throat> One Center, we're behind the visitor's bench. You know, you're distant from the floor. One of the biggest changes, and you thought about changes, is the fact that over the last yeah. 10 years, Radio broadcasters always used to be in every arena right on the floor at the scorer's table. Well, the last several years, that's no longer the case. There are only, I think, four arenas left where we're even close to the floor. And, and Doug, I know you and Grant are getting used to the oh, idea. Oh, boy. Even television is being taken off the floor because those yeah. are valuable. That's valuable real estate. And they can sell those spots for big dollars if you've got a, you know, a real popular team. So... The broadcast has changed, I think, from that standpoint. Uh, it's much more difficult from me, from my standpoint, in identifying people, uh, being accurate in your call. And, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a take pride in being a professional. I want to be accurate. And I know there are times when I misidentify somebody, and it just it drives me nuts when that happens. But that's a byproduct of how the game is now so different from a broadcast, from a radio standpoint. And, you know, I have no accurate indication of how people, how closely they listen to a radio broadcast. Some people tell me that they do. Some people I know just are checking in to see the trend or the score or what's going on. So um, I suppose there's a little bit of everything along the way. But I, the, the big challenge now, particularly when you're seeing a team for the first time and they've got new faces every year, trying to be sure that you know who those people are. And it, it drives me nuts 
that the league will not take the simple little step in the 15 yeah. minutes that teams come out for their formal warm-ups. Why can't they have a number on the warm-up jersey, front, back, elbow, hip of the warm-up sweats, whatever, so that <clears throat> when you're looking down there and you see, okay, this guy's got dreadlocks, this guy's got, you know, yeah. yellow shoes on, you know who it is, instead of having to wait until the opening tip to find out, to see, oh, that's number so-and-so, that's <laughs> so-and-so. It drives me crazy. But that's uh, the nature of the beast, and, and that's not, yeah. probably isn't going to change, and so you just, you have to accept it and do the best you can. That, that, that is a good point, actually, because when we're like in um, Philadelphia, for Philadelphia. instance, okay, that that sometimes I, I Washington, I, I have a problem seeing. We're way over in the corner. I'm like, did that? I'm thinking to myself, did that basket go in? <laughs> and it, when you're talking numbers, and I've I've said this, G man, you are what disseminates the product to the people. That's why I thought being uh, so close to the floor is important because there are so many nuances that you're able to deliver when you sit close to the floor. You can hear the referees. Sometimes you can even oh, hear yeah. the coaches and the huddles. Yeah. Those are important aspects that are missed out on. Well, and, and it's interesting. One of the things that's flashed through my mind over the last six weeks or so, I'm watching replays of Kings games. I'm listening to you and Grant call Kings games. And Sorry the inter- you can hear the coach and you hear your references to what the coach is saying or indicating or when he pulls buddy heel over you know you get a you get a real good feel if there's animosity if there's supportiveness yes. you know just what the tone yeah. is during a timeout you can call the lead official over and say give me a quick clarification on what happened you can call right. the athletic trainer over and say what are you worried about with the Aaron Fox is it of concern you, there's so much that you get yeah. being close to the floor that you don't get when you're up at that intermediate uh, position. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I was watching uh, the Kings were playing the Clippers and one of the Clipper players yelled at Blake Griffin, like, Hey, you have any more? And he goes, yeah. And he reaches in his sock and he pulled out a pack of bubble yum, bubble gum and he threw it over to him. And <laughs> it was just, you're, you're on the court and you're like, that dude has gum in his sock. <laughs> the randomness of things that you see yeah. close. I mean, oh, I spent no doubt. three years sitting courtside right next to Aileen voice, uh, voice on. And, you know, to have Dick Bavetta come over and give Aileen a kiss every game was like, okay, this is strange. But players would run and slam into your table and they're like, oh, sorry about that. And then they would go the other way and you would hear, you know, when Jimmer stepped on the floor, Matt Barnes start talking. Oh, go out, go out. He can't defend anybody. <laughs> and you're like, like all of the, the real, the, the nuances of what is in their bubble. Uh, you know, Doug, you've talked about this, how you could hear Vlade's voice no matter oh, what. Oh, it would be 20,000 people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I guess the world has changed for you dramatically, you know, moving off the court and stuff. But the, there was a point that Mitch Richmond brought up the other day when we had him on the pod. He said that, like, when I got traded to the Kings, they were a very young team. And people, uh, teams at that time, they didn't have, if you were a young team, you just got, you know, killed every day. Like, you go up against the Knicks where they got, like, 12 guys who are 30 years old. You know, you go up against the great teams in the league, and everybody is a veteran. They might have one young player. And now you look at a Kings team that, not just for the last couple of years, but for the last decade, has been nothing but, you know, 
first, second, third year players. How has that been different for you watching the youth of the league really change throughout the, the last like three decades? Well, everything evolves and everything changes. And sometimes it's cyclical and you kind of spin around and you end up doing things that you were doing 25 years ago. But as we all know, I mean, the game has changed so much. The, the emphasis on three-point shooting, the, the intermediate pull-up game is almost gone for, for the vast majority of players, in my, in my opinion. It's either yeah. layup at or above the rim or outside the three-point arc. That's been a huge, huge change. But in terms of the young players coming up, you know, I, I make no secret of it. I'm 79 years old. I'm generations apart from, you know, the Harry Giles and the De'Aaron Foxes and the Buddy Heels, the Bogdan Bogdanoviches of the Sacramento Kings roster. And yet you work at trying to create some kind of a relationship that's not only a working relationship, but a relationship of trust. And mm -hmm. if you can make that link somehow and you can feed off of the energy of these young people. And that's, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an avowed Harry Giles fan. I love this kid's charisma not only his skills, but I just, and I love his, his awareness of the fans and the fact that he wants to give back to people. And I think that's what, that's what professional sports is all about. And we've got a lot of really good representatives in the Sacramento Kings, in my opinion, who are extremely good in that category. That helps, that makes my job a bit easier, but you have to work at, at building these relationships. And that's one of the things that I'm concerned about now as, as we evolve and get back to the possibility of, of attending and, and broadcasting games again, will we have access to the locker room? Will we have access to the players on right. the floor? Will we be able to continue to develop those relationships? And as new personnel come in, how do we go about building the bridge that, that creates the trust and the charisma and, and the rapport with these people? I think that's, that's gonna be a big, challenge and I think a big concern for broadcasters as we get back closer to getting involved with the game again. You know, Gary, I think you're spot on because that is, it's such an important piece and there's information, not that you would ever disseminate anything that is personal information, but there's a relationship. Grant and I had um, Mario Andretti on and he spoke of you in glowing terms and when you talk about relationships i he just he just came to my mind uh just speak to the relationships i mean i sit behind you on the plane and i always tell people i have the i get to talk to you in a different way and we talk sports and we talk different life and different stuff coach used to walk back on the plane those are the, the, I mean, but for, for, first of all, it was an honor for Mario Andretti to come on. And then when he brought, we said your name, he just, he, he went on and on. People like that, that you've run across in this career, just uh, speak to what that means to you. Well, again, I mean, I, I love relationships like that. And I, I try never to take advantage of a relationship like that, because I think that's how you build trust and in, in a, in a camaraderie in a long-term relationship. And, you know, I, I did a tremendous amount of motorsports activity uh, at a network level for almost 40 years. And the IndyCars were a, a big thing. And Mario, of course, was a, a big part of that. But there have been, it doesn't make any difference if it's motorsports, uh, if it's NFL football, which I was able to do for eight or nine years, if it's NBA basketball, 
Uh, I mean, and I did a lot of weird stuff along the way. <laughs> I did sumo yeah. wrestling, and I did you know, <laughs> the Jackie Stewart celebrity skeet shoot in Wales. I mean, and, you know, things along that line. What? Great fun and, and great learning experiences. But somehow you just, you want to be genuine, and you yeah. want to earn the respect of the people that you're dealing with. And I, I think it's just, I think it's so important that that you're able to do that and i you know i take pride in the fact that that there are a lot of you know fairly high profile names in sports and entertainment that i've been able to develop good relationships with over the years I, i'm blessed in that category no or in that in that resolve no question who would we be most surprised that you you have a, a strong relationship with that you could text right now who would be we be shocked g-man well, most, uh, many are older, some have deceased. Um, I became a very good friend of Paul Newman, the actor. and entertainer. Wow. He was, he was uh, a good cool Luke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of folks that I'm a fan of uh, gospel music, and I have many, many friends, for those who are familiar at all with gospel music, that... Uh, you know, Bill Gaither and his wife, Gloria, and uh, Sandy Patty, and uh, Ernie Haas, Signature Sound, different folks that, in, in that particular realm. Um, but, you know, people that you, <clears throat> excuse me, have met and become acquaintances with, and, I, and the, the bulk of them, of course, are related to either basketball or to, uh, or to uh, motorsports. But um, those are a couple of names that, that would come to mind. You know, G-Man, uh... For me, this is mightily important. I don't know how important it is for you, but to uh, to see a parade in front of the Capitol and for watch the Kings win a championship, uh, for me, it's, uh, you know, it's a painful, painful thing. How, how important is that for you in, in your career? You've been here the, the whole time. Well, 2002 still hurts. Oh, I mean, boy. You, you know the hurt probably better yeah. than I. But yeah. I'm, I'm not on the floor giving my all, but I'm on the sidelines giving my all to, you know, to, to paint the picture and create the atmosphere and to be so tantalizingly close to an opportunity to play for a championship ring uh, was huge. And, you know, and frankly, I wonder, well, I know that, you know, my, my ears are, are limited and I'm, I'm on the, the downward slide here in terms of, of a career and, and I don't. I don't like that because there's this there's this void. Um, I I so much I mentioned this to somebody the other day in an interview I was doing. Um, Tim Roy has been a longtime friend. He started his broadcast career in Arizona and then came to Sacramento and he worked alongside in those early days of the Kings and time when the Kings weren't very good. And he went through a lot of really tough years in his what 25 years now with the Golden State Warriors. But he now has three championship rings in his yeah. collection, and I, yeah. I envy that so much, and I, I'm yeah. so happy for him. Yeah, but absolutely. Think about, wouldn't that be the culmination? Wouldn't that be just such a marvelous experience? And it's not yeah. just the fact that you look upon a worldly possession; it's what it represents. It, it the fact that it means that you've conquered the mountain. You're the best of the best, and Nobody can ever take that away from you. Yeah. And I, I just, you flash back and we frequently talk about that, 
that series with the Lakers and the fact that it did go to seven games. And of course, you know, the drama of the, was it game four where the Ori tipped back, or the Velotti yeah. tipped back, the Ori three-point shot. Then the Mike Bibby buzzer beater in game five at Arco and then go down in the controversy about officiating in game six in L.A. And, you know, the fact that, you, you know, I'm sitting on the floor and I see Kobe Bryant absolutely steamroll Mike Bibby right in front of <laughs> And there is no, no phone. <laughs> and to this day, it just enrages me that how can that be? Now, by the same token, the Kings in game seven, what, missed 21 free throws? Come on. The opportunity to win it, regulation, didn't happen. <sighs> I mean, it just, you know, oh. Yeah. And this is what, 18 years later. And, and yeah. the nerve is still really raw. Raw, you know, man. For all Kings fans, I think that's that's the case. Because we were so doggone close. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I and you think about a parade in Sacramento, the capital, one thing or another, the, you would be the envy of the entire sports world. Not only the NBA, but to experience a moment like that. And I don't know if it'll ever happen in in my lifetime. God, I sure hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know what? We, uh, I stumbled into this with Doug and Mitch the other day when we were on the pod. And to be honest with you, it did not even clue into me. I knew that Mitch won a championship with the Lakers. I knew at the end of his career, he finished his career with the Lakers. I hadn't looked at the exact date. I did not think he was on the O2 Lakers team and to have him recount that while Doug is sitting there and talking about. I love that, that segment. That was awesome. Just running out. He said, I was the first one to run out and jump on Robert Ori and to be (laughs) able to have, you know, his whole career there in Sacramento, seven years. And then, look across to man, they're going to beat me and I'm not going to get a ring. And they're going to be the reason with that team. I mean, it's incredible how, the just the little nuances of basketball and how it's so uh like the degrees of separation are so incredibly close uh but what was it for you to actually see a player like mitch get to the promised land and get a ring at the end well i I mean obviously i felt i felt good for him i I felt good i think peja got a ring in dallas dallas Dallas, Uh, yeah they will got a ring in miami miami you, you feel good for those people. But I, but as you're recalling about Mitch and I'm thinking about his great career and the fact that he was, he was so far above any of his teammates in, in the time that he played in Sacramento and what he meant. And I flashed to that 96 playoff series against Seattle and, and how the Kings got the, the split and the first two games in Seattle come home. And still to this day, it's the most, significant memorable moment perhaps in, in my 35 years with the Kings the crescendo the din the noise when the Kings came on the floor that particular season I was doing TV with Jerry and we're standing there next to each other earpieces in and you could not hear each other it was that wow. loud and it was sustained through the opening tip I mean it was 20 minutes and, yeah. and the decibel meter I don't think it ever came below probably 105, 110. I don't know. I mean, it was just, it was magical. And it was crazy. And, and, and Mitch was the key reason. And, you know, we're playing them on even terms in game three. Then he gets hurt in the second half. And bye-bye, Huff said. Uh, 
know, it, it just it really hurts. But, you know, it also makes me think about, we talk about Mitch and Jay Will and Peja and, and those who've been involved with the Kings who end up with a championship ring. And then you think about what we've been watching the last dance with Michael Jordan and what does he have six rings and the Kobe Bryant and the number of rings yeah. that he has and LeBron. And you think multiple rings for these people. What level do you have to be at to, to achieve it? Not once, not twice, not three times, but maybe five or six times. That yeah. boggles my mind. You know, G-Man, uh, I was talking with uh, Peja and he, he was talking to Kobe. This was well before he passed away. And he was saying that uh, if you guys would have beat us that year, you probably would have reeled off two or three because mm -hmm. there's a knowledge, there's a swagger, there's a confidence that comes with that that takes your team to, a, to another level. So w when you say that, as I watched the last dance, I was telling Ham before we came on, uh, Michael's probably to blame for us not winning the championship because of some of that corporate knowledge that he passed on to Kobe. Because I hear Kobe talk about basketball, but then I watch his footwork and playing against him and different things like that. And now to know that Mike was uh, – uh, he was he was passing on things to him that uh, I was the recipient. Bang, bang, bang <laughs> of, of a lot of that. I just go ah. Yeah. It was uh, just just uh, you're right. There's a uh, there's a mindset and a lot of different things when you talk about multiple championships. Well, and, and in that time frame, it was I think it was New Jersey, the Nets under Byron Scott, who went to the finals two years in a row, and in the 2002 season. And I think the Lakers swept them. And they were not that strong. The Eastern Conference, in my mind, wasn't that strong. Oh, no. You know, I, I don't think there's probably any doubt in your mind. Had you survived that game seven and advanced to the finals, yeah. you'd be wearing one of those rings today. Well, you, you know, G-Man, um, I was a teammate quickly of, uh, of Van Horn when he was in Dallas and he, he was talking about that. Now he was like, yeah, we wanted to play you guys. And I was thinking, no, you didn't want to play us. I don't know if you remember the game, but we went there into uh, New Jersey and we beat them by like 45 points that year. We beat the, yeah. In the Meadowlands, we beat the yeah. socks off of them. So yeah, I think we were the Lakers swept them. I'm, I'm pretty sure we would have as well. Yeah, Keith Van Horn talking trash. I mean, come on. Uh, yeah, on <laughs> come on, Keith Van Horn. <laughs> yeah, get out of town. That's why I told him. I said, "Are you joking me right now, man? We would have just thrashed you guys." Obviously, you don't remember what we did to you in the Meadowlands, but it's okay. That's right. Uh, all right, Gary, we can't keep you all day. Uh, I, I love the conversation. I and you know, to be honest with you, we're all locked in our houses, and and just being able to get back to some normalcy and, and chatting. Um, it, it feels, it feels really good. Um, you know, this was a season for me, like this was my 10th year covering the team. Um, I, for me, it's a joy to know that, uh, that you and, and Jerry are our friends. Uh, but this was a hard season for you. I know it started out hard. Uh, you had an injury to start the season and it's just how, how do you want to keep doing this? How long are you going to keep doing this? Do you, are you going to do it forever? Uh, and did this one in particular just take something out of you? And, you know, uh, especially with the way that this whole thing has worked out with the shutdown and everything else. I don't think it's taken anything out of me at all. I, I, that's what I want to hear. What I do. I love what I do. I have a passion for it. I want to be able to continue to do it. I'm yes. disappointed in the fact that 
who knows if we're going to get the chance to play those remaining 18 games of the season or not. I'm certainly hopeful that somehow we will find a way. Last year was uh, a year of rejuvenation in terms of my belief in Kings basketball. And I admired what David Yeager and his staff did in, in trying to build a foundation. I've become a huge fan of Luke Walton and his staff. And I think they're wonderful, wonderful people. And I want them to, I want them to be able to enjoy success. And I think we were all stunned at the disappointing way the season started and the fact that the team had to, you know, immediately was in a catch-up role. But mm -hmm. we've seen development. I mean, you consider the injuries to Fox and to Bagley predominantly. Huge. And I think that that gets kind of lost in, in a lot of people's minds. The fact that Marvin's only played, what, 12 or 13 games the entire yeah. season. And you see the emergence of De'Aaron after a very bad ankle sprain coming back and then continuing to escalate his play and his ability to take over a ball game and becoming a more consistent player and a better defender and, and all of those different things. And I, I see the emergence, you know, the acquisition of Bazemore and, and Len. And we forget about Jabari Parker because we only saw him in, in one game. And, yeah. and you look at Corey Joseph and all these different pieces along with the core group. And I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged. I really am. And, and I want to see this. I want to see this evolve. And, and they were showing us in the last 20 games that were played before the, the shutdown because of the, of the virus. What was it? 13 and 7. And competitive in virtually every one of those games. And, and showing an ability to come from behind and get into a position to win. And a lot of the, the messages that I think Luke and his staff have been preaching for the previous months were coming to fruition. And I can only imagine how frustrated he and his staff must be because they can't see a continuation of this, of this growth. And nobody knows, you know, if we are able to come back, how much time will be devoted to a training camp and getting the rust off and getting back into shape and so yeah. on and so forth. And will we, everybody be starting over like a fresh season or, or what? So many things that we can only speculate on. But going back to your premise, I, I love what I do. I sure hope that I'm afforded an opportunity. I, I felt so blessed that for 35 years I've been able to do what I do. I think I can still do it at a very respectable level. And I'm, I'm a pretty harsh critic. I get very angry at myself at different times with things that I forget way I call a scenario or whatever. But I love what I do and I want to be able to continue to do it. And here's hoping that somehow I'm knocking on wood here that the <laughs> fit to make that opportunity available, even though I'm an old fart. Hey, G Man, you, you are the best man. You you know how I feel about you. I tell you all the time, man, I love you. I appreciate the opportunity to get to know you on so many different levels and uh, hope to see you soon, my friend. Well, this, is, this has been a treat. It's fun. And I, I, I thank you guys. I, I admire each of you and what you do and your roles that relate to the, to the Kings organization. And here's hoping we can all just push forward and, and get closer to maybe getting a glint of one of those. <laughs> <laughs> one of those rings. One of those rings. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Purple Talk podcast on NBC Sports. Thank you to Gary Gerald. Say goodbye, Gary. Thank you. Thank you to Peace. Doug Christie. This was uh, absolutely wonderful. Uh, we'll see you all very soon. Uh, again, thanks for tuning in to the Purple Pod podcast on NBC Sports California.